Amen. Uh, thank you, Dave. Um, uh, very, very touching. It's been my absolute joy to be able to give a day a week for the past kind of year and a half. Um, I love this community and I love the staff team and uh, it's been great. And uh, as I said, like much of the time was spent kind of keeping each other sane, um, but also um, really just been such a joy to serve this community in that way. Um, it's such a privilege. But anyway, we're going to jump straight into our last um, portion of the book of Philippians this morning. Um, and if you want to just open your Bibles, we're going to jump straight in and read the passage together. Uh, it's going to be on the screen. Uh, Philippians 4, 10 to 23, which takes us right through to the end of the book. Uh, So let's read together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, says Paul, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So just very quickly as we begin, I'm going to give you a sketch outline of what's going on in this part of the book of Philippians. You know, first kind of reading, there's not maybe that much to kind of get our teeth into. Paul's talking at length about this gift that he's received from the Philippian church, uh, sent via Epaphroditus, as we know, and the relationship that he and the Philippian community had together. Uh, It's worth noting that uh, gift giving in the ancient world was kind of quite a complicated thing, and this is kind of why Paul is at length to explain what is going on, this dynamic that he had between him and the Philippian church. There was this give and take dynamic. Paul wouldn't take money from one of the other churches that he had helped establish, the Corinthian church, for this very reason, because there was this dynamic at work in gift giving. Um, The Corinthian church, as we know, were pretty crazy. There was a bit of immaturity there. And if Paul had received a gift from them, they may have expected something back in return. They needed to know that the gift that Paul was bringing in the gospel and his service to them was completely free. Um, But this Philippian church seemed to have understood that they had entered into this partnership with Paul in the gospel where there was this dynamic of giving and receiving. Paul seems at length to explain his reasoning for being pleased with the gift that the church had sent to him. This gift that the Philippians gave to him is credited to their account, he says. He seeks, Paul seeks for the Philippian church, the fruit that increases to their credit. 
that this gift is a gift that is seen as being pleasing to God, not just to Paul himself. So there's this dynamic at work that Paul is highlighting in this passage that is part of the life of faith, actually. It's part of the life of agape love um, that is experienced in Christian communities all over the world and down through the centuries. There is this circle of grace that we experience together, this koinonia, that Greek word that describes um, what happens amongst communities of believers that the living God is at work in. When we give of our money in participating and partnering with the local church or with others, there is actually this dynamic at work that God is intimately involved in. There's a giving and a receiving beyond the giving and receiving in kind of earthly terms of financial gifts um, involved. And Paul says later on in the passage there that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. That's kind of a sketch outline of what this kind of end passage is about, but we're not going to talk about giving today. We're not going to talk about finances. Um, You'll maybe be glad to hear. I I would love actually to do a talk on money and possessions or something like that, because there's a lot to be said about it. Jesus says a lot about it. The New Testament and the scriptures say a lot about it, but... um, I kind of find it a little boring sometimes, you know. Sorry, sorry, Jesus, sorry. Sometimes some of this stuff can be a little bit boring. I'm allowed to say that, yeah. But um, this morning, we're not talking about that. What I want to talk about this morning is something maybe, hopefully, a little more intriguing in this passage. We all love a good secret, don't we? You know, most people are pretty clear on what a secret is. Who here, who, who here is going to admit to knowing something that only they know, like a piece of information that they haven't shared or don't wish to share with anybody else? You know, we know some big secrets in our culture, whether it's the formula for Coca-Cola, you know, or what about the Colonel's chicken and KFC? You know, the herbs and spices, it's all in the herbs and spices. There's this secret recipe. And there's nothing that kind of raises our interest, that grabs our attention more than a good secret. And so for the next 20 minutes or so, I want to focus on three verses within this final passage, verses 11 to 13. I'm going to read them here. They're going to be on the screen again as well. I'm going to read them from the Kingdom New Testament, which is Tom Wright's um, translation. He says, I'm not talking about lack, this is Paul speaking, I'm not talking about lacking anything. I've learned to be content with what I have. I know how to do without, and I know how to cope with plenty. In every possible situation, I've learned the hidden secret of being full and being hungry, of having plenty and going without. And it's this, I have strength for everything in the one who gives me power. This little word, secret, in this passage, secret in English is actually a technical term that Paul was using in his day that had this common usage, which meant being initiated into the mystery cults of his day. Very mysterious. There are all these sort of strange kind of mystery cults in Paul's day that were spread throughout the Roman and the Greek world. And Paul uses this word for secret for being initiated kind of metaphorically here to describe the art of living. And the art of living in contentment, whether it's in want or whether it's in plenty. 
And what he's saying is that there, there are, what he's saying here is these, these others, sorry, what he's saying here, these others that the Philippian church were seeing partaking in the mystery religion, religious cults of the day, those, these others who had been initiated into these strange kind of mystery cults, um, the Philippian church would have seen, seen this going on around them, but Paul was saying something very different. He was saying that he has been initiated into having both a full stomach and in going hungry, which kind of sounds very strange and doesn't really make a lot of sense. But Paul was saying that the secret that he had discovered allowed him to say that he had been initiated into this, into facing both plenty and hunger, both abundance and need. And he would find contentment in both of those extremes. Paul, as we know, was a man who was really well acquainted with hardship. You know, he's writing from prison, as we know, and he's writing to the Philippian church from prison. And elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, he recounts the list of hardships that he had faced in his ministry as he brought the gospel to the Gentile nations. He says, he says this in another passage in Corinthians. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes left one, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Rubbish, what a tough life. We kind of read that and we kind of skip over it and our comfort in today's world. But what Paul was facing was actually completely horrendous. Five times he received 40 lashes minus one. Can you imagine the state of his back after that? Beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. Crazy. Paul knew hardship intimately in his life. He didn't choose the hardship, but he endured the hardship. Many would have probably have despaired and lost all hope and being brought as low as Paul was. But he claims to have found the secret to being able to live in this way. Steph was talking a little bit about Paul's hardship last week. She was talking about how we can see from his writings that Paul likely suffered from huge mental anguish, perhaps even depression and anxiety. So much so that at times he actually despaired of his life. And he talks about that earlier in the book of Philippians. And yet here we have him talking about knowing this secret that allows him to endure. We also know in Paul's day that there were a number of major kind of philosophical thought schools. And as a learned man, Paul would have been well acquainted with these. And in this little, these little three verses here, scholars today, when you read the commentaries and this sort of thing, you kind of find out that Paul is using language here and the way he has constructed his argument here is very reminiscent of the way these philosophers would have written about how they constructed their, their arguments and so on. So very quickly, there were kind of three major thought schools in the Greek and Roman world. There were the cynics, and these were guys who had kind of, they lived a life of asceticism. They'd given up kind of their worldly kind of wealth and, and possessions, and they desired to live a life free from possessions. They were kind of like proto-monastics who had kind of eschewed the kind of, you know, the 
the, the possessions and, the, and taking a, like a vow of poverty. Then there, there were the Stoics, and the Stoics taught that um, heaven and earth, that God and the world were actually the same thing. And so whatever way things were in life, there was actually no way to change it because God and the world were the same thing. So we just have to kind of put up with whatever comes our way. We kind of have, you know, we know what it means to, you know, say somebody is stoic today. It kind of means that they have this inner resolve that they find within themselves the the resources to just push through whatever comes their way in life. And then we have this third thought school of the day, which were the Epicureans. And they taught that the heavens and the gods were way up here and the earth realm was way down here and they were completely disconnected. So there was absolutely no way that anything could be changed in your circumstances that came to you. So you just kind of had to put up with it. All of these thought schools of the day in the Greek and Roman world kind of made it possible for the adherents to put up with whatever came their way in whatever circumstances they finished, they, they found themselves in. Um, but it came from this kind of inner resolve that they drew on um, by making these philosophical moves that ended up in leading to a particular way of life in the world. And today, you know, it's no stranger to us that there are many kind of similar kind of this kind of thinking in today's world. Um, but rather than us being content in what comes our way in our individualistic kind of consumeristic age where we understand freedom means the freedom to choose whatever we want to be for ourselves. So we can be, you've heard this phrase, be the best version of ourselves that we can be. There's an entire industry that we can draw on of self-help books and self-appointed gurus that awaits us if we want to step into this journey. You know, we're all pretty familiar, or many of us in this room are familiar with the Enneagram. You know, I don't need to say anymore if you're familiar with the Enneagram. If you're not, don't worry. It's, uh, don't go down that rabbit hole. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this particular book, I'm aware of this book that has been out for maybe about the past 10 or 12 years. It's a book called The Secret, right? Um, No less than Oprah Winfrey, the queen of the new spirituality. She's given a fair bit of airtime to this book. And this book has been, it was the number one bestseller, I think, on the New York Times bestseller list when it was released 10 years ago. And it consistently tops the charts of spirituality kind of, you know, um, uh, seller lists even today in bookstores and Amazon and so on. And this is, this is a section from the blurb in the back of this book called The Secret. It says this, fragments of a great secret have been found in the oral traditions, in literature and religions and philosophies throughout the centuries. For the first time, all the pieces of The Secret come together in an incredible revelation that will be life transforming for all who experience it. In this book, you'll learn how to use the secret in every aspect of life, money, health, relationships, happiness, and in every interaction you have in the world. You'll begin to understand the hidden, untapped power that's within you. And this revelation can bring joy to every aspect of your life. Sound good? Using various techniques, this book and others like it claim to teach us how 
to actually sort of manipulate reality to our own ends, usually with the goal, as they said, to find fulfillment or comfort in this world. Now, whether it is complete nonsense, whether it's some kind of powerful kind of pseudo-psychology, whether it's something slightly more sinister and there actually is something going on in the teachings of this book, many have bought into this and uh, this is pushing it to the top of the bestseller lists around the world. But never mind the secret according to this book. I would encourage you, if you own that book, file it in the bin or the fire, something like that. Get rid of it. Utter nonsense for a follower of Jesus. But never mind all of that. Here we have Paul saying that he has found the secret. He says, I have learned the hidden secret. One translation, Tom Wright's translation, puts it like that. In contrast to the Stoics and the Epicureans and the Cynics, Paul's whole worldview is of heaven and earth coming together in the person of Jesus. He says that the secret to being in abundance or need, hunger or plenty, is to be found in Jesus. He says, I have strength for everything in the one who gives me power. Or another translation puts it like, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul is contrasting the philosophical schools and the mystery schools of his day with his sufficiency that is found in the person of Jesus. All other competing philosophies and ideologies call for this kind of self-sufficiency, a digging deep into ourselves for the resources to get us through. Either that or it's calling on things external to yourself that are not Christ, the gods of money, gods of sex or power. Paul says, don't look to yourself. He says, look to Christ. Paul says, don't look out of yourself. He says, look to Christ. It's not a self-sufficiency that is the secret to contentment in all things, in lack or plenty, in hardship or good times. It is a Christ-sufficiency. If we could sum up what Paul's worldview is in a couple of simple sentences or statements, this would be it. If in want, Paul is a man in Christ. If in plenty, Paul is a man in Christ. Throughout his writings in the New Testament, Paul contrasts being in Christ with self-sufficiency. And Paul's point is that he has learned to live in want or in plenty through the enabling of Christ. That is the secret. Before we go on, I want to say a little bit about this verse, Philippians 4.13, which probably many of you know very well. Um, Tom Wright, in his translation, puts it like this. He says, I have strength for everything in the one who gives me power, which is slightly more accurate translation than the King James Version, which is probably the one that we're most familiar with, which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This Philippians 4.13 is one of the most popular verses in all 66 books of the Bible. It's print, been printed on millions of keychains, on fridge magnets, and T-shirts, and bumper stickers, and coffee mugs. It's a favorite of professional athletes, in fact, I know of one uh, mixed martial arts USC star who has it tattooed on his chest as he kind of pummels his opponent into the canvas. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, you know. 
It's been etched on the faces of American football stars as they kind of give glory to God for their astounding athletic ability and touchdown record. Gets wheeled out when Christians get involved in grand ministry efforts and feel a degree of success that allows them an opportunity to kind of humble brag. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But all this leads to this text being one of the most misunderstood, misused, and misinterpreted texts in the whole Bible. Let me just check before we go on. Does anybody have this text as a tattoo? (laughs) Before I completely trash it. (laughs) No? Good. Let's go. We're going to do a wee bit of scripture busting now. Philippians 4.13 functions as a kind of mystical incantation for many Christians. They recite this passage when they need to draw power from another place to defeat an enemy or to conquer a particular task. You know, we might imagine this text as being the Bible's equivalent of, you know, He-Man's sword. I have the power. (laughs) I have the power, you know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's a well-known Mega, mega church pastor in America with a big smile that might give it away. Um, this is what he has to say about this text. He says, most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings, but scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It is possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It is possible to overcome that obstacle. It is possible to climb to new heights. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it will all take place. You may not have a plan, but all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. Just using that quote as an example of the way many Christians today understand and interpret this verse. For them, the all things that Christ empowers them to accomplish includes fulfilling their dreams, climbing the new heights, and embracing their destinies. Do you want that job promotion? Do you want to find your soulmate? Do you want to have a better love life with your spouse? Do you want to make more money? No sweat. You can accomplish all things through Christ. I can, I can, I can. This way of interpreting Philippians 4.13 couldn't be further from its actual meaning and context. We've already seen that there is no triumphalistic tone to what Paul writes here, and in fact, reading it this way stands in total opposition and contradiction to Paul's intent. Paul isn't telling the Philippian church that they should dream bigger dreams. He's reminding them that they can endure the crushing feeling of defeat, even of being slung in prison, as he has. He's not encouraging them to go out and conquer the world. He's reminding them that they can press on when they feel conquered by the world. Um, Religion uh, author Jonathan Merritt says this about this text. He says, God is not a divine sugar daddy or a cosmic power plant to to fuel your own personal dream quest. Instead, the Bible teaches God is a sustainer when life feels unsustainable. This is a good news message in this verse because experience will tell us that life is messy. It can be really, really harsh. It can be unpredictable and it can be full of disappointment. Perhaps we don't need a God 
who motivates us to pursue our career dreams or chase down opportunities of personal development. Perhaps we all, for good or ill, possess all of those kind of drives within ourselves anyway. Instead, maybe we need a God who hunkers down when life gets tough, who isn't afraid to get mucky and messy and wade through our tragedy and our pain and our failure with us. So to return to our big point this morning, Paul's point is that he has learned to live in want or in plenty through the enabling of Christ, that Jesus is the secret to his ability to live in contentment, whatever his circumstances. But so what, you might be saying, you know, you might be saying, you might be thinking to yourself, we get it, yeah, 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 Jesus is the answer. It's kind of the Sunday school thing, isn't it? The answer to every question is Jesus. And profoundly, actually, in the end, it actually is the answer to every question, which is remarkable. But I think there is a deeper secret to all of this, a deeper magic at work, if you like. I think it's the secret that allows Paul to speak as he does, how he was able to live as he did, how he was able to suffer affliction and persecutions as he did and not waver one bit in his allegiance to the king. If we, as believers, as followers of Jesus, are gonna give our entire lives to the king, which is actually what he demands of us, then we must be convinced that Jesus is a good and benevolent king, that he is worthy of our complete devotion. You know, most of us aren't able to just snap our fingers and expect to instantly be madly head over heels in love with Jesus. Rather, there must be an unveiling of his beauty. That's what happened to me. And it's probably what happened to many of you as well. I can remember in the early days when I believed and followed Jesus 13, 14 years ago, that initially I was completely undone and awed by the forgiveness of God. His mercy and his grace to me was so deeply moving to me and still is. In the early days of my journey with Jesus, I just held on to that for dear life. But it took time for his beauty to be unveiled to me. And this is what I believe happened to those first followers of Jesus. They beheld the splendor of his majesty in the person of Jesus, and they were fascinated by it. And eventually, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it transformed them. You know, this word worship that we use carries these ideas of extravagant love, of utter devotion, of total submission. Why, why does God demand, desire, not demand, why does he desire worship? Is it because he's some kind of cosmic narcissist? Not at all. It's because he is worthy. Jesus is worthy. I mean, there's this word worthy that has captured my imagination for the past, I don't know how long. Can we just stop and pray for a moment before I go on? Um, Pray with me just one moment. King Jesus, we say to you this morning, 
that you are worthy, that we offer our whole hearts to you. We offer our lives to you. And King Jesus, I ask, we ask this morning that you would unveil our hearts, that you would cause us to behold your beauty, that we would see you as worthy, that we would be captured again by your beauty, that we would be captured by the first time, for the first time by your beauty. Come, Lord Jesus, come, take up your rightful place in our hearts. Come and set a fire in our hearts that burns, that causes us to love you, causes us to declare declare that you are worthy, causes us to see you as beautiful. In your name we pray, amen. You see, we become, we become like what we worship. We are transformed when we worship, when we behold the beauty of Jesus. I'm not talking about just the half-hour set of songs that we sing on a Sunday, though that's a part of the story. I'm talking about a daily beholding, a daily abiding, a daily gazing on the beauty of Jesus. You know, before you or I came on the scene, God was love. We know this, right? I spoke about it a couple of months ago um, in a talk called Lies We Believe About God. We know this about God. We experience God's love as the grace of Jesus Christ. God's love for us is mediated to us in the grace that we experience through Christ. The heart of the Father is for us in Christ through the power of the Spirit. And I'm contending that part of the untold secret of the Christian life is that before we can ever fully surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ, we must be assured that he genuinely loves us. And 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. If you have given your yes to Jesus in this room today, you are now in Christ and you are the object of the Father's love. You are a beloved child and he cannot but love you. His love will, if you let it, draw out of you a full and complete allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. An allegiance that isn't born out of guilt or shame or condemnation or religious duty or obligation or fear, but one that is drawn from the compelling sight of Jesus' beauty. I love 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's an author I'm reading at the minute, Frank Viola, and he muses that the absence of this unveiling of our hearts is precisely why devotion to Jesus is profoundly lacking in the hearts of so many Christians today. He goes on to say this. He says that the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And it is by seeing the glory of Christ that God establishes his kingdom in our hearts. The way of Jesus is one of beholding, enjoying, reflecting the beauty of Christ. To be born again, to be born from above is to become 
to become alive to beauty. It is essential that we become captivated, fascinated, gripped by the beauty of Jesus. If not, we're gonna struggle with boredom in our walk with Jesus and our hearts will be vulnerable to pursue other things. I know this, I know this, I know how deviant my heart is, how it can so easily be taken this way or that way. It needs to be tethered to the beauty of Christ. To put it another way, if Jesus hasn't fully captivated your heart yet, it simply means that perhaps you haven't caught a glimpse of his infinite beauty. The reason there is so much beauty in the created world around us is because it flows from a beautiful creator. The beauty that we see in the sea and the sky and the forests and the mountains and the trees and the flowers and the animals is God's self-portrait that he has painted for us. It shows us what the living God is like. They all give us a glimpse of the glorious face of God. The human soul longs for the beauty behind the beauty that we see in the created order. The beauty that we kind of consume with all of our physical senses is both a gift and it's also like a signpost that points us in the, sort, in the direction of the source of all beauty. The wonder that we can experience at the created beauty around us is meant to lead us to worship the creator of beauty himself. And this is where the gospel of the kingdom begins with us. The antidote, the spiritual boredom. If you're bored with your walk with Jesus today, this is the antidote. It plagues so many of us today, I believe, including probably leaders in the church as well. We need a fresh awakening of the beauty of Christ in our lives. Fyodor Dostoevsky says, beauty will save the world in a very famous quote. And I think there's such truth to that. Beauty will save the world. I believe Paul was a man who was completely captivated by the beauty of Jesus. This is why he could say that he was content in all situations, no matter what he faced, he could go into it with full acceptance because he had encountered the beauty of Jesus and experienced the transformation and strength that comes from that. He treasured Christ above all else. He knew the worthiness of Jesus and he was ruined for anything else other than him and his kingdom. And I guess my challenge to us all in this room today is to consider if we are beholding the beauty of Jesus. Have we all been ruined for him? Had our hearts ruined for him, forsaking all else? Have we had our faces unveiled, unveiled to behold his glory? Are we daily gazing upon him? We're gonna just jump back into the text right at the end of this passage. And Paul gives a little nod and a wink uh, right at the end here when he says to the Philippian church, all God's people send you greetings, especially those from Caesar's household, which to the Philippian church would have caused a little bit of an excited kind of gasp from them. Caesar's household, there are believers in Caesar's household. 
Paul was saying that there were those in Caesar's very household right under his nose who affirmed the lordship of Jesus and the good news of the kingdom of God. Remember, we've talked about this a few, over a few weeks here. In the Roman world, the word gospel meant good news issued by a political leader. It was this kind of non-negotiable de- declaration that there was a political sovereign who was Caesar, and uh, this was heralded throughout the Roman world. It was a political announcement that Caesar is Lord, and it demanded complete loyalty to Caesar. When the Christians kind of emerged on the scene and they announced that Jesus is Lord, I've lost my place. Their announcement wasn't seen as a spiritual or a theological affirmation. It was a political declaration of treason and sedition against Rome. For them to say Jesus as Lord was truly culturally dissident in their day. That's why the early Christians were persecuted. That's why Paul was imprisoned. It wasn't that these early Christians were competing with the Roman gods of the days of the day. You know, the, the, the Jewish people had already forsaken all the pagan gods of their day. And they didn't really pose an immediate threat to the, the empire of Rome. But these Christians, they were breaking the loyalty oath of the empire by proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, not Caesar, is Lord and King. And in the same way, wherever and whenever the gospel of the kingdom is received in today's world, it breaks or it should break the loyalty oath with the world system today, including any political, national, entertainment, educational, and even religious system loyalty. The kingdom of God is a revolution. It's a revolt against all that dehumanizes the beauty of God's good creation. It is against everything and anything that detracts and distracts from the beauty and majesty of Jesus. For us today to be able to live in times like we do, we need to understand that the only way we are gonna be able to find true freedom is to lock our gaze on the beauty of Jesus and find all of our sufficiency all of our worth, all of our meaning, all of our identity in him. That is the secret that Paul's talking about. When we learn this, we'll discover how it's possible, as we said, I said in week one of this Philippians series, how we will discover how it's possible to live as citizens of the gospel of the king. We will learn how to live in unity together as a disparate bunch of people with differing ideas about different important things. And yet we will discover how to live in holiness in community. We will learn what it means to love extravagantly. And yet in that, we can discover what it means to live with wisdom and show discernment in our day. Beholding the beauty of Jesus, we will be transformed into having the mind of Christ And we will learn how to live in God's new day, which is called the kingdom of God. I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to finish now. And we're going to, as we do every week, um, break bread together. Um, And as we do that, 
Can I invite you to stand? As we do that, I'm going to pray. And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And just to remove from your heart, if you feel like there is a a veil over your heart that you're experiencing that has hindered you from beholding the beauty of Jesus in a more clear way, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and just lift that veil and that you would be able to encounter and see and know and experience and taste and see that God is good, that Jesus is beautiful, that his spirit is here, that you are living in the kingdom of God today. King Jesus, we we do declare this morning that you are beautiful. We do declare this morning that you have captured our hearts. We do declare this morning that we prize you above all else. King Jesus, would you send your Holy Spirit to us in these moments and if there is anything in our hearts, anything in our lives, anything that is hindering us from seeing you in your beauty, from encountering you in your glory and your majesty, that you would come, Holy Spirit, and that you would remove that. That you would remove that. That we would have the scales from our eyes removed. That we would have the eyes of our hearts enlivened, that we might behold the beauty of our King Jesus. In these moments, as we take bread and wine, King Jesus, would you be especially present to us? In the bread and the wine, would you mediate your presence to us? Would you come and infuse us with your presence in these moments? And as we, as we think on you, would you let our hearts behold you? Would you cause our hearts to burn with a love for you, Jesus? Would you strip away everything that stands between us fully comprehending and knowing you? Come and burn it away, King Jesus. This is Paul's prayer at the end of the letter, or the beginning of the letter for the Philippians. I wanna just pray this over us as well before we sing. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you all may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's come, take bread and wine as we sing.